the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. We are going to talk to Sean Jump with SIA Partners today. We're going to learn about data, lots of the cool things that SIA Partners is doing with that data, and then some of the really forward-thinking, progressive applications for just technology and, and the use of that data in many business applications across the, both the industry and the world. So a lot to talk about, a lot to learn about. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. It's an absolute pleasure. I feel honored to be on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for your time. We had a little bit of you know, work getting this scheduled, work through everything. Where are you at today? So downtown Houston. So right in the thick of everything oil and gas. So it's been been an interesting past few months between the pandemic and the commodities price going down to where it, where it went down to. And Houston specifically has been hit in an interesting way. But to be honest with you, I've, this is my third downturn that I've been through. And the prices are coming back up really quickly and demand is starting to open back up from COVID as Houston kind of gets going again. And so all things are kind of pointing in the right direction, which is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's always good to see things rebound. And, you know, and, and probably one of the things I know you and I are going to talk about today is, you know, this, this industry is cyclical, right? It is, it's got its peaks, it's got its valleys. And some of the stuff that, that you've been working on can really help level those out, right? Yeah, man, I'm a Houston guy through and through, and, and I hate seeing downturns in the oil and gas industry. And, you know, through the years that I've been working in the industry, it's been interesting to see how different the downturns are coming to fruition. You know, sometimes it's going to be supply side, sometimes it's demand side, it's going to be international things are happening and market forces are pushing the market in one direction. But North America is in this really interesting spot because we're not technically a part of OPEC, but we're one of the largest oil and gas producers in the world. And so we've got an abundance of natural resources to bring to market and over the last 10 years have become increasingly diversified in who we supply. You know, net oil, crude oil exporter, bringing in new markets that we're getting more connected with. And so between the last couple downturns and this one, I think part of that rebound is really playing into the fact that we are a bit more prepared for what's going on. We can cycle assets and we can cycle volumes to where they need to be to really be a true capitalistic market when it comes to the to the oil and gas marketplace. And so I want to see more of that. I'm a Houston guy through and through and and I want this market to be the best market in the world. And the way that we can do that is understanding how do we optimize the way that we run the industry on an individual company level, but also on an industry level where you can take accountability for, you know, project overruns, where you can kind of take accountability for moving your CapEx in the right direction, and just overall having a really good strategy. And that's like the main difference I've seen between the past turndowns and and this one is that I feel like people were a bit more prepared. They're moving faster to do things. They're making decisions based on better data. And those are all things moving in the right direction. The industry still awesome. has a long way to go, but we're, we're getting there. Yeah, no, it's, there's... There's a lot of moving parts. There's always different motivators every time we go through one of these transitions. But yeah, I agree with you on all that. Yeah, we're very agile and flexible and 
prepared. Like you said, that's great. Being, you know, so-called, you know, Houston guy through and through, like you said, what's your favorite part about Houston? Man, my favorite part about Houston is, well, it was recently going to Astros games. I don't know how I feel about it now. I'll, I'll <laughs> always support them through everything they do, but it was a big blow to kind of hear about what happened there. So, I mean, that's my favorite thing. Like I live in downtown Houston, so it's easy walk over to the stadium. We always do stuff on the weekends. We go to festivals and we support the downtown district as much as we can, which is kind of the the chamber of commerce for downtown. So we're always going out and supporting businesses and restaurants and, and different places. We've got two young kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And so we love taking them to Discovery Green. That's probably one of our favorite spots to go to as a family. And then just hiking along the bayou. I mean, the Buffalo Bayou Partnership has done such an amazing job in getting the land and keeping the land up to where you can use the the bayou for excellent jogging, great biking. And it now goes almost 20 miles out towards Katy, but you can use those trails. So it's it's a really cool spot to be in right now. But you also get the bad side of it, which is when Hurricane Harvey came through, there was a significant amount of flooding in downtown Houston. So we've had to deal with that as well. But being a Houston guy, that that all comes with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I saw somebody post on social media something and said something like, I miss baseball so much right now that I just grilled up hot dogs and charged my family 10 bucks a piece for each one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I watched the SNL skit that they did. It was their first Zoom SNL and they did a fake sports broadcast and they had like four unpopped corn kernels and and hot oil (laughs) announcing like which one was going to pop first. It was, I mean, people are really getting desperate. I'm one of those people I've been watching past Astros games, on the major league baseball app. And I'll always go to the game six against the Yankees where Jose Altuve hit that home run in the bottom of the ninth to win it and and go to the world series. I mean, such a great moment. I've got that like on, on replay constantly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm not really a big sports guy. I just didn't grow up in it. It just, you know, I was, had some other interests and stuff. But yeah, like I go over to my neighbor's house. I'm talking to him and I'm like, you know, he's a huge sports guy. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm watching WWF now because that's the only thing <laughs> that's left uh, that's actually like new, ep- like new sports of any type. And then I think he also was watching like, was it like live slap fights from like Russia or something like that? Like. <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but I'm going to find out right after this. They're slapping each other. Like they're big, huge dudes and they're just slapping each other. Like that's the competition. This is what it's going to be. This is what it's going to be. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. So that's cool. You know, it's a nice info about your background there in Houston and everything. How about your background on what got you kind of where you are with SIA Partners today and, and what's your you know, your career background. Yeah, sure. So I I went to Texas A&M University and got an engineering degree. Hopefully nobody holds that against me, but I did mechanical engineering and nuclear engineering, and then immediately came to Houston and got involved in oil and gas. And so for the last 16 years, I've been working throughout the industry. I started out in downstream where I was doing process engineering for FCCU cat crackers while they were coming down offline to do maintenance during shutdown mode, and then would stay there through commissioning and restart up and then go to the next one. And so I did that for about two years. And then I got moved into the midstream space where I was uh, doing project management for EPC capital projects and have done, man, over the next eight years, I did about 700 capital projects, anything from build a new pipeline jumper between pipeline A and B so we can get product moved into the the right storage well, all the way up to greenfield ethylene cracking units that were $2 billion 
that you know had several years of lead time in the feed stage before you even ordered the first stick of material. And so I was in the industry for about 10 years and got some really amazing experiences, worked a lot of hours, and then decided to go back to school. So I went back and uh, got my MBA from Rice University. And then coming out of the MBA program, I moved into consulting. And so I've been in consulting for the last six years. I started my career in consulting at Ernst & Young in their Houston advisory office and worked with a bunch of different clients all across the upstream space, looking at optimizing drilling completions, working with offshore divisions at all the super majors and understanding that entire value stream and how it interacted across like a vertically integrated company. And then got married, had two kids and the big four travel lifestyle does not lend itself to having two young kids when you're gone all the time. And so discussed it with my family. We had to make a change, wanted to be closer to Houston and, you know, came across Sea Partners and Sea Partners is a really interesting consulting firm. There's so much going on for them. And they're still kind of in the brand building stage in Houston, but they've been around for 20 years. And the energy industry is about 50% of the revenue for SIA partners. And we've got a long list of credentials across that space. And what's interesting about them is that they have a special focus on data science, application development, and deployment. They're kind of the pioneers of what we call consulting 4.0. And across the industry, as you, as you well know, oil and gas operators can tend to be very siloed in their operations. And it's not necessarily their fault. It's just that the industry has kind of been built that way. And there's so many specific skills that it takes to get something done. It makes sense to have like a very defined specific skill set, but sometimes it's difficult to get information traveling between the right people and get things done. And so what's really interesting about SEA Partners is that when you go do a consulting engagement in oil and gas, you can also tend to be to become siloed in your mission with your with your client because of the way that they operate. And having that kind of fully integrated data science layer behind everything that we do as part of Consulting 4.0 allows us to go in with our clients, break down those barriers of communication, and involve everybody in the conversation at the same time. So it's not like I have to go grab somebody else and they got to grab somebody else and everybody kind of joins hands. It's all kind of seamless. And we're able to kind of develop things between we have a problem all the way through solution commissioning and startup, where you've got a new data science application that's working in your business across these different silos to be able to get stuff done. And they've been doing that for the last 20 years. And so that's a very appealing thing to someone who has worked in the industry for a long time and understands that there's a lot of data and there's a lot of data needs inside the industry and there's a lot of problems to be solved. And so being able to kind of apply my past industry experiences and my consulting career with that data science layer has been hugely meaningful to me going and executing missions with our clients and creating some really productive and interesting solutions. Just kind of thinking through the list of shows that I've already done, I mean, there's three or the four or five at least out of the 26 shows or so that we've done, depending on when this one comes out, that are all around data, either collecting data through sensors, through meters, through you know, just different different software pieces, you know, so much data. Is there places that we're not collecting data today, like that, you know, is kind of the next wave? Are we going to have sensors on something, you know, that we're not capturing today? Where do you see that going? Yeah, I think that's a really, that's a really good question because you kind of hear like two views, right? There's like, I feel like the engineering view of the world, which is we never have enough data. And then you hear like the the decision makers point of view, which is 
we have too much data already. We, we need to use the data that we have today. And so getting both of those kind of cultural groups within oil and gas on the same page is always really difficult. But to be honest with you, I think that oil and gas companies today are collecting far more data than most other industries. It's just the way that the industry is tooled that makes it so much more difficult to use the data. You know, if you go to a Google or an Amazon and you ask them to do a customer analysis, you know, customer touchpoint analysis, you can literally get one guy to sit behind a computer and data mine interactions with their websites to figure out, you know, what their touch points are with their customers. If you ask an oil and gas company to do the same thing, they got to go to pre-drill engineering, they got to go to drilling engineering, completions, facilities guys, production engineering, geology. There's just so many different skill sets and players that are involved in completing just one asset to get it producing oil or gas and bring it to market. It's just a totally different game. And so when you ask oil and gas companies, you know, how can we use data in a different way or should we be collecting more? I would almost frame it in a different way. I would say that optimizing is the future of oil and gas. And I would say like asking and answering the questions where oil and gas operators and contractors can make a step function change in the way that they go about doing things is a really critical question to ask and to answer. Because that kind of solution, that kind of thinking behind optimizing actions, decisions, results, ultimately impact the entire value chain across the company. And achieving like a true optimization is incredibly difficult because if you think about what a true optimization means, it means that you have a completely balanced risk reward scenario and that you know all the data. And that's, that's a really hard thing to do in oil and gas. But to answer your question, I feel like there's plenty of data there, but it's connecting the data at the right time and the right place with the right people so that they can make optimized decisions. And to be honest with you, in today's market, there's, there's some really cool advancements that are being made in that optimization space. And I'll share with you shortly, but you know, one of our partner companies is called Fujitsu and they're out of Japan. They're a fantastic company. They actually own the most AI patents in the world. So more than IBM or the Microsoft, they're doing some really amazing things. They're really on the cutting edge of this space. And they've got a product called the Digital Annealer. And it's basically processing chips and software that are being integrated across a number of industries. And they've got a, a number of highly developed use cases for oil and gas, which are kind of focused on three, three pillars. One being, how do you optimize manpower across projects? And that's a really critical space, especially for service contractors. How do you optimize drilling completions so that you're getting the most out of every well that you drill? And then how do you optimize storage and inventory? which is a big question right now as people are collecting as much as they can and they're waiting for the market to rebound a little bit. Making the decisions around all three of those things are really, really critical to the bottom line and to thinking about how do you use data? How do you connect it to what we know? And how do you connect it to asking the right questions so that we can move faster, we can make more money, and we can run our company in more optimized fashion? So just for my understanding, I guess, you know, when, I, when I'm hearing you describe that, I guess I'm visualizing just like a consolidation of like reporting into one central location. Like I know like today if I have just my day-to-day reporting tools and, and the data that I can consume for my position, you know, sometimes they can be contradictory. Sometimes they might not have the whole picture. And you're also looking at like, you know, 10 different streams of, of information where now I'm as the viewer 
kind of playing one against the other and kind of interpreting them all individually. With this optimized data and that kind of ultimate goal there, is that just kind of having it all in that one central location or, or am I just com- like completely off on that understanding there? No, no, you're totally on spot with that. And that, as many people know in oil and gas, can be the most difficult part is just getting all the information you need at the right time to understand how to make the decision. But we're like something like the digital annealer would come in is once you kind of connect all that data and you've got everything that you need in one place, then that allows you to kind of optimize your decision-making. And in some cases, it's not as simple as just taking a look at all the data in front of you and saying, this is the right way to do it. Because the digital annealer, the way that it thinks and processes information is honestly very different from the way that a normal computer or even a human brain would look at data and say, this is how we need to go about it. And like the, the easiest way to think about it is like the traveling salesman scenario. And so you start in Houston, Texas as a traveling salesman, you need to hit 26 cities and you want to optimize getting back to Houston the fastest. And so the way my brain does that is, okay, well, what are the 26 cities? And let me just try one and see how long it takes. And then let me try this other one and see how long it takes. And you keep doing that until all of the different combinations of all the cities you could possibly go to have been done and measured and you have the results. And then you just go through the list and say, okay, which one was the fastest? That's how normal computers solve problems. The digital annealer is actually capable of running every single one of those combinations simultaneously and finding the fastest path almost instantly. And so when you think about a computer that can that can process data and look at combinatorial optimization problems in that way, you can really do some cool stuff with it. Like I've, I've talked to a super major who has visions of creating an entire room just full of screens. And that's kind of like a data hub and you don't have a keyboard, no mouse, you know, it's a little bit futuristic, but you walk up to the screen and you'd say you highlight the entire continent of Africa and you tell the computer, Hey, I want to optimize revenue out of this continent for the next three months. How would I do that? And the computer goes away and comes back and it tells you, you know, all of your maritime shipping and logistics that need to be optimized. It tells you the production output from your refineries, the production output from your upstream oil and gas producing wells, your optimal blending across different customer-centric sales products. And it gives it to you almost instantly. Like how much easier would it be to run a business, to be able to do your job, to think critically about how you can make things better in oil and gas if you had a tool at your disposal like that. And I know it's a bit futuristic and we're not there yet, but that's kind of the direction that oil and gas needs to be thinking and needs to be going to be competitive in this market. And it's it's not just competitive like with other companies in the industry, it's competitive with other industries. You know, if you look at Google and Amazon and all the other technology companies, they are by far getting the lion's share of Wall Street's investments right now. And Wall Street companies are pulling out of energy companies and pushing it into technology. And so you got to be competitive with those other industries. You got to have better return on investment to kind of compete and to get that capital and, and to continue to grow and do the best that we can as an industry. Yeah, no, and that that sounds super interesting. I was kind of envisioning the matrix, you know, with all the code running by. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true, man. It's uh, it's very forward thinking. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It is very forward thinking, but yeah, it's going to happen one day. And you have to be forward thinking, right? Like, there's always going to be the the pace setters, right? There's always going to be the the people way out front. There's going to be people that are 
you know, way behind, then there's a, probably the majority group in the middle, right? But so if the quantum annealer, if I said that right, is like the forward thinking kind of like the real progressive you know, item. I'm sure there's lots of those, right? But that's just kind of one that we're referencing today. What's something that is grabbing a hold of market share today and gaining deployment and and really starting to pick up speed in your eyes? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a there's a big trend in oil and gas right now for investing in a technology called robotic process automation. Most people just refer to it as RPA. Some people refer to it as the digital workforce. But there's a huge movement and adoption towards RPA. And I think it's a really important technology. It's probably one of the most important technologies that will impact oil and gas over the long term. So to kind of set this up, what I'll say is that I went back all the way to 1946 and I looked at data from that year all the way through 2019. And I was tracking two kind of critical pieces of data across the oil and gas industry. And so one was the closing price, you know, average inflation adjusted of West Texas Intermediate in that year. And I compared that with another data point, which is the average between super majors and all majors in the industry of their SG&A costs. And SG&A is just an average overhead calculation. You know, how many people do we have divided by the amount of revenue that we're making as a percentage? And so it's no, you know, it's nothing crazy. It's nothing that research papers are going to be written about. But it does give you like a very good visual of what happens when commodity prices go up or down and what happens to your overhead and SG&A costs. And this is the thing that we started talking about at the beginning of this podcast was that I hate seeing the industry in a downturn. And the reason why I hate it is because when the industry goes down, people get laid off or people get furloughed. And there's so many talented people that have invested so much in getting a oil and gas career going. When they exit you know, however they exit, it's really difficult to get them back. And so what RPA helps you do is that when, you know, commodity prices spike and oil and gas operators go and hire a ton of people because there's more stuff going on, their SG&A costs go way up. And the same thing happens when commodity prices go down, commodity prices go down, they lay off everybody and furlough people. And it's just a really difficult time in the industry overall. We're going through that right now. What RPA allows you to do is to accentuate the work that everybody does in your company. And so if you're paying invoices, if you're doing customer credit checks, et cetera, the things that you really, really want to work on, the things that are high value are the problems that come up. You know, the one-off instances, that difficult customer, those are the things that really add value. And what RPA is capable of doing is automating a lot of the low-lying, voluminous processes that take up a lot of people's time every day. And it frees people up to be able to go and do more important work, higher value work, higher value problem solving. And what it does is it corrects that curve between oil and gas prices and SG&A costs across the industry so that it's really the only time in the history of oil and gas where commodity prices can go up and you don't necessarily have to go out and hire tens and thousands of people to meet this new demand. And on the other side, when commodity prices go down, you don't have to lay people off and you don't have to furlough them. And so this is a very stabilizing technology that is really going to propel oil and gas into an area that it has not really been in before. So let's take that, maybe break it down just a little bit lower. Like what's just a a very maybe entry level basic application that probably any oil and gas company or, or really probably most companies could use RPA for, you know, day to day. Yeah. So, you know, I think 
when people think about how do you use RPA across the industry, there's a ton of different use cases, but I would say it's primarily focused on back office functions that have high amount of volumes, very repeatable processes. And so you'll see this across like accounts payable, IT. We talked about some of the finance applications like customer credit checks, customer onboarding, master data management. There's so much work that goes into doing just activities like that, where people kind of, they come in, they clock in, they clock out, but they find themselves doing the same activity over and over and over again, and kind of looking around saying, hey, you know, it'd be really nice if maybe we could automate this because this is actually taking away from the work that I need to be doing, which is higher value, which is calling up that customer and saying, hey, can we, can we give you some better lifting rates for next month? And so it's primarily focused on those back office functions. The second focus is where you can kind of gain incremental value for supporting front office operations. And so this can be automating reporting. It can be automating compliance checks. It can be automating even things like trade entry to make sure that there's good data quality, there's consistent data quality, and freeing up people's time. But I'll say like anytime I bring up RPA, people always get a little bit worried. They're like, wait, physical robot is going to come in and sit at my desk and start typing on my computer. I'm like, no, no, it's not that at all. It's just software. And so what this software does is it's programmed to kind of mimic keystrokes and clicks on a mouse to do the same things that you would do. And so like I built a bot the other day using RPA to go look at the Best Buy website and to scrape all the sales ads and email it to me once a day. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I would be doing that on my own, you know, after working hours just to look for interesting deals, but I've got it scheduled to where it does it automatically and it sends it to me at 7 a.m. And so, you know, if there's something super interesting and cool, you know, I'll take a look at it, but otherwise it automatically does it for me. And so you take something as simple as that, you know, that's something like most people can kind of relate to. They're like, oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty cool actually. And you take that and you apply it to your, your daily job. There's so many ways that this technology can be used and it would really help, you know, customers in oil and gas do so much more with the people that they have. It's really an incredible and simple software that's pretty easy to put in. So how, how would a company go through the process to set something like that up? I mean, is there a lot of development work that has to be done? Is this a very drawn out deployment? timeline or or can it, can we move relatively quick and, and train it just like you know you could train a new hire in a couple of weeks for some of these you know real repetitive tasks yeah that's that's a good question I think most people when they hear the word software and oil and gas they have like an allergic reaction and they're like hold on a second I've been through an ERP implementation or mm-hmm. you know I've been through a <laughs> geospace implementation and they're just like, I don't really want to do that anymore. And so software has kind of gotten a bad name, but this is very different from like these big accounting software implementations. Typically, the way that you go about it is you just first identify where you feel like you have value. And we, you know, a company like C Partners would be able to come in and help you measure that using 17 distinct variables that we look at. But it's mostly focused around, you know, what you already know. You're like, okay, I run this report once a day and I email it to my boss. I don't do anything with the data. I don't manipulate it. I just download it. I put it into the right format and then send it on. And if I could automate that, that sure would be cool. And so going about it is just first identifying you know, where you, where you can use it. And the second step is just understanding how the process is done today and making sure that it's something that's ready to be automated. 
And what I mean by that is I've worked for a client before. It was in the supply and trading space and they had a global vertically integrated company and they had offices all over the world. And so I spent three months of my life going all over the world, interviewing supply and trading people and understanding how they do specific parts of their business. And what I found out was after that research, there was about 200 different ways of doing exactly the same thing. And so knowing that, like kind of going into it is a huge value because if the company had just decided, hey, we want to automate stuff, hey, let's go automate this. What would have ended up happening is they would have automated 200 distinct, unique processes that are really all doing the same thing. And so the cost of doing that for 200 things would of course be way higher than doing it for something less. And so the first step is kind of just understanding, are you ready for automation? Is the process stable? Is this something that's constantly changing or is this something that has a very defined workflow? And that's kind of what you're looking for is the areas that have a very defined workflow, very repeatable, low variability. Those are perfect things that you can automate, get off of people's off of people's work schedule and have them focusing on higher value activities. And so you see this kind of across the industry, but there's really kind of like a couple of big use cases, I would say, where people typically find good value. And I would say one of those is supply and trading. It's a big use case. It hasn't been deeply explored by a lot of companies, but the ones who have explored it have found tremendous value. So it's significant in the sense that in the front office, if you can eliminate some of the daily minutiae, traders and people working on part of the supply and trading offices are capable of developing deeper relationships with vendors and counterparties, which oftentimes leads to better, more profitable trades. And so it's not typically a a use case that's looked at very hard, but there's a lot of people looking at it now, especially in a down market where they're looking for any way to kind of boost revenue, boost profitability. That's really, that's a big use case. And I found a lot of success with clients over the years who've invested the time and effort in that area. That's really interesting. So, I mean, we've kind of got some of the basic examples. And then, like you said, this is that supply and trading model that is a little more, you know, untouched, a little more on the forward end of the curve of of adoption and application. It seems like a dumb question, but I mean, what about when it comes to, and maybe this is kind of what you were you were pointing to is, I think there's still a lot of like paper processes, like non-digital, like scanning in invoices, like those are slowly going away. But I think there's still a lot of that that floats around in some of these companies. Could RPA, you know, in any form or fashion kind of attack those processes? I mean, I'm sure somebody physically has to put those those into a scanner, but when you're dealing with like a non-digital document, are those the kind of processes that are just kind of, the actual process has to be upgraded before something like RPA could be applied? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So it's definitely something that RPA can tackle, but I would say that RPA is really like a foundational technology and it's so cool to talk about data science and it's so cool to talk about these cool cutting edge things like the digital annealer and quantum computing. And and those things are, are really transformational technologies. But really the building block is RPA. RPA allows you to automate and connect different programs with your processes. And so just like you're talking about getting paper and having to scan it in, you know, once you scan it in, what do you do with it? You know, it's it, well, your computer's not it, reading it. Index it, yeah. Index it, yeah. And you put it in a file somewhere. And if you need it, maybe you pull it up again. But, you know, it's not part of the, you know, what I would call digital data community of what you're doing. It's just a scanned image. But 
RPA is able to then read that scanned image, interpret that data, collect certain pieces of data from that image, and then connect it to the process that needs to be done. So if it's an invoice, you get through the mail, you scan it, RPA will then collect the account information, the counterparty name, address, billing information, push that into a program like SAP, and then do the supply chain things that need to be done to match the invoice with the customer, You know, do contract compliance and make sure that they're not billing outside of their bill rate, and then pay the invoice if all things are good to go. And so a lot of it is around not necessarily eliminating paper, because I don't think you can ever eliminate 100% of the paper, but how do you use the paper more smartly in a way that you can connect it to and enable different business processes? And so RPA lets you do a lot of that stuff. Whereas if you just had a standalone machine learning process, you could read the image and it would it would collect it, but then what does it do with it? The machine learning program itself doesn't push the business process forward. It would just send you an email back saying, here's the stuff I just read off the paper that you gave me. And you kind of look at it and go, wait, I could have done that. How is this? <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah, so yeah. if you connect RPA with all these different parts and pieces, you can now start to kind of amalgamize all these things together and have a very fluid process that's able to take things from the very start. You know, you scan it in through a scanner and before you know it, the invoice is paid as long as it goes through all of its compliance checks and, and everything it needs to do to match it up and then pay it. And so a client that I was at, we helped automate a $50 million per day invoice process, huge accounts payable process. And they had operations again, all over the world. And we were able to automate about 85% of their efforts to just keep up with $50 million worth of payables per day. Huge, huge benefit to the company. They were then able to take the people that were focused on doing that day in and day out, move them into contract compliance. And then in contract compliance, they were able to find multi-million dollars worth of, of value by having them just double check things and do higher value work. So net net, you know, the RPA saved them a significant amount of money just in processing and processing time and then repurposing people that wanted to do other things, they were able to find multi-million more in savings. And so it, it can really make a huge difference in the way that companies approach a business process and also how they make money with their business. Yeah, no, and and I think you kind of touched on something really cool there, which was, you know, I know when we, you and I first started talking about this kind of before this interview, you know, I think I had the question for you, which is like, I bet you get a lot of dirty looks about the robots taking my job, right? Like, or you're the sales guy that comes in and says, here's this software that's going to displace, you know, 20 of your employees or whatever, right? And I think that can happen, right? That certainly can happen, you, you know, that you could cause some jobs, but you're probably more often than not going to end up with just that example you just gave where now those, those individuals have been upgraded. They have uh, maybe a more rewarding job where instead of a, a repetitive task that they maybe don't have a, you know, doesn't have as much fulfillment. Now they're, they're doing something that is directly making the, the company something tangible and they can see. And, and now they're a happier worker because of the software, you know, being deployed. Yeah, no, you're totally spot on. There is that kind of cultural feeling whenever people bring up automation. And I think, to be honest with you, it kind of goes back to the automotive industry. And so many things between oil and gas and automotive is similar, even dating back to like when Henry Ford pioneered the assembly line. That's really when oil and gas was kind of hitting its heyday 
in terms of upstream production. And they adopted a lot from Henry Ford and the way that he built that company. And that's kind of why you see some of the siloing effects that you see today. You know, people being very good at one specific thing and being part of this, you know, bigger machine that kind of all works together. But yeah, there is that cultural feeling when people say automation, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I have personally never worked with a client that has leveraged RPA to cut heads. That's just my experience, not to say that it hasn't happened, but some more of the progressive thinkers in oil and gas are not using these types of technologies to cut jobs. They're using these types of technologies to stabilize their business and make sure that they don't cut jobs in the future. So it's more accretive than it is subtractive in what it's really doing. And you hit, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about kind of quality of life at work. If you come in every day and you're doing the same type of activities day in and day out, for the most part, there's not a lot of people that enjoy that over a long period of time. You know, they want to do higher quality work. They want to do more interesting, engaging types of things. And so I always say, rather than take the human out of the robot, take the robot out of the human. You know, if you have people clocking in and clocking out doing the same stuff every day, all day long, you know, they want to do more. People are passionate about being additive to the business. And so where they have opportunities to do interesting work and do higher value thinking and problem solving, that's really why, why you want people in your business in the first place is doing that type of work. And so I've never had the experience, you know, where people have leveraged RPA to cut heads, but it's really a way to get more out of the people that you have. And in getting them to do higher level thinking and problem solving, you're getting more out of them. And so it's, it's, it's an education thing. It's a cultural adjustment. You know, I love getting the question about, you know, there's going to be a robot in my desk pushing on my keyboard. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's, it's something different. And so that's all part of it. You know, when we talked about how do you get started or how, you know, how do people get engaged with this type of technology? That's really where it starts is getting educated and, and C Partners has a ton of materials about RPA, use cases, case studies, oil and gas clients that have used it in the past, my own personal experiences that I can share where people have been very successful in using RPA and getting a better cultural work balance with people that are doing those types of activities. Awesome. Yeah, I know that seems extremely useful and it sounds like really something a lot of companies should be should be looking into and and they should be looking into them this kind of software, whether it's through SIA partners or through, you know, just internal channels or, or, or what have you. But I mean, now's the time to be looking at it, right? The oil and gas is going to come back. Oil and gas is going to come back around, maybe take some of this downtime, slower periods and, and put that into deploying these new tools and applications. And then, you know, you're kind of better prepared when things really start to blowing and going again. Yeah. And, and what's cool is like, you can, you can learn this stuff pretty quickly. It's nothing, you don't need a computer science background or degree. It's not programming. Like most people think about programming. It's called low code technology. It's mostly drag and drop. And so people can pick it up really quickly and working as a consultant in the industry, it's not something that consultants are needed to do over a long term. You know, you want to partner with a consulting firm that knows what they're doing so that you have a good experience. But once you get enough experience under your belt, it's not meant to be a permanent consulting thing. It's people get educated, they learn, they get qualified, they get some experience. And then before you know it, everybody's got a Best Buy bot that's sending them emails at 8 a.m. <laughs> to see what the sales are. And so it's nothing that is difficult. It's more about the approach. It's about the perspective. It's about trying to prioritize how you use it so that you find the best return on investment with the first use cases that you tackle and then going from there. And you know, once the roadmap is there and people understand how to use it, it's really a partnership between IT 
and the business. And that's where you find the most success is when IT can then identify automation opportunities that can either save money or additive to the business. And now your IT organization, rather than being viewed as like a cost center only, can now be viewed as part of the business and part of cost savings and part of optimizing the way that things are run. It's it's really a unique thing that happens over time. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. We've touched on, of course, RPA, which is a fantastic discussion. Really, really enjoyed learning more about that. And I think that there's a lot of use for that. You've touched on quantum annealing, right? Yeah, quantum annealing. What is one, you know, maybe one other topic that you think might be kind of on the, the next wave of of the oil and gas, maybe you know, specifically the oil and gas offshore industry that maybe hasn't gotten a lot of traction yet, but you think it's you know a rising star? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's there's a couple of things that come to mind when we think about like what are some of the cooler advancing technologies that you could find, especially like related to offshore. And the first one that comes to mind is a little it's a little crazy, but it's called hexo skin suits, and a hexo skin suit is literally a t-shirt type material that workers out in the field would wear that helps to monitor biometrics. So it checks your pulse, your lung capacity, sweat and hydration levels, body temperature, et cetera. And for offshore, where you've got a bunch of different platforms in operation at all, all points around the world, it's really difficult for a safety person to manage and monitor what's going on in real time. In fact, most safety people can't do that because they don't have the availability of the data. It's mostly phone calls. If you get disconnected or you don't have service, you're really in the dark. And so it can be, it can be a very dangerous situation, but hexoskin suits allow you to monitor employee biometrics, contractor biometrics in real time and relay back to the safety department what's going on. So rather than being reactive you know, if something has happened, you can now be proactive. You know, you can call the rig and you can say, Hey, look, employee number 4521 is approaching overheating. He needs to go take a break, get some shade and and drink some water. And that type of thinking and mentality is something that this technology can really enable. And so that's, that's one, it's really kind of a cool out there kind of thing, but they've actually, they've used it in the NFL is where it originally came from to measure NFL players and, and to track the progress with them. And it's now being expanded beyond kind of that original professional athlete use case into these other domains. And so I think that's one to kind of keep an eye on and see where it goes. The next one that I'm seeing some traction started to get is again, a little out there, but cryptocurrency mining using flare gas or stranded gas. And this one's super cool. I know it sounds weird. I know, well, but I've heard about this one. It wasn't the, the two, the twins. Was it the Bosselman twins that started with Facebook? I think I saw some news articles where they were dumping a bunch of money into you know this exact scenario. I don't know if you're you're aware of that, but <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I mean, there so there even in Texas, there's been a couple companies in the Permian that have invested in this, and so yeah, it kind of kills two birds with one stone because you've got flare gas, you got to get permitting for it. They're hypercritical on CO two emissions now, and so what you can literally do is you just drop a data center in West Texas, you plumb it up to flare gas and that flare gas then gets used to power an electric generator. That electric generator then runs your data center and you go mine cryptocurrency. It's a really cool thing. And I actually think that this is going to be something that helps diversify oil and gas away from commodity price shocks like we recently had, because there then becomes like this optimized decision-making process where you're like, okay, do I produce and sell natural gas to the market at spot prices? 
do I produce natural gas and, and burn it in a generator to produce electricity and sell the electricity? Or do I use the electricity to mine cryptocurrency? And so looking at any one of those three at any given time, one probably has the upper leg in terms of profitability. And so if commodity prices crash, all these oil and gas contractors and companies that have invested in the data centers needed to do crypto mining can flip the switch and start making money on cryptocurrency as opposed to oil and gas, which they might not want to use right now, like a lot of people are, are storing them at significant levels. So that's, that's one to kind of take a look at. Just like RPA, a lot of education is needed and a lot of kind of getting over the hurdles of the old guard who might not be comfortable with cryptocurrency is definitely needed to kind of make that happen. But I have seen tremendous traction on this recently, and it's a very viable business model. If you're a vertically integrated player that's producing gas anyway, you can use it to make some some good revenue and, and some good profits. Awesome. Yeah. I've been following some of those items. I know they do that with solar farms too, where they take the off-peak hours. Those, I mean, that you can't turn off solar panels, right? So when the grid doesn't use enough demand from the panels, they'll run them into a data set and they'll use basically surplus energy that are coming off the panels and they'll do much the same with the, the cryptocurrency mining there as well. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, man. And you can join these crypto mining pools. You can do it mining as a service. Companies will bring the data centers to you and you just pipe in the flare gas or sell them the electricity. I mean, it's a budding market. You know, the biggest thing used to be like the speed of your computer that you use to mine cryptocurrency was the biggest differentiator. But now it's not really about that. It's more about making sure you're doing it in the right way. You can spend a ton of money on, on computer equipment to get the best and the brightest, but you don't really need to do that today. And so not only is it something that's new for oil and gas, but the, the barriers to entry into that market have come way, way, way down. And so it's, it's becoming a very popular thing to review and look at for diversifying revenue and profits for oil and gas companies. Awesome. Awesome. Sean, this has been an awesome discussion. I learned a lot. Hopefully all the listeners have learned a ton as well. Hopefully some light bulbs clicked on and, and people see maybe some use for RPA or some of these other technologies in their business. So thank you. Thank you again. Is there anything, any other you know, last bits and pieces that you wanted to go over that we didn't get to catch up on? Yeah. So the only thing I can think about is, you know, as we're kind of dealing with the tail end of this pandemic with coronavirus, SIA Partners has been running a really cool program, which is for oil and gas clients that have been impacted in some way or form by, by coronavirus. We are doing pro bono consulting hours to support our industry, to support Houston, to support other areas that are dealing with this. And oil and gas has definitely got it the worst out of most areas because of the commodity crash plus the pandemic erosion of demand. It's really turned out to be something that has hurt the industry. And so SIA Partners wanted to make an invested effort to make sure that we can help the industry through this and support initiatives and support projects that people are doing right now in a pro bono way as a way to kind of give back to the industry that's given us so so much over the years. And so I want to kind of put that around in the community and, and where people need support or have ideas or want to progress ideas or want to talk even more about some of the things that we've talked about today, you know, reach out to the SEA Partners Houston office and we're happy to talk about it and see how we can help and support in any way as we all kind of deal with this industry downturn and as we all kind of prepare ourselves for the next phase of oil and gas. Awesome. That's great. I'm glad you guys are doing that. And I can't uh, ask for more. That's fantastic of SEA uh, Partners for putting that out to the industry. So hopefully some people contact you guys and, and um, 
put some deals together and solve some problems. That's fantastic. To everybody listening, we skipped right over it to the beginning. We jumped right in so fast. But I do want to give, of course, the shout out and a thank you to our sponsor. The show is sponsored by Tidewater. They own and operate the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you're interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. And if you enjoyed the show, or if you didn't enjoy the show, but you're still listening to this point, leave us a comment, leave us a review, give us your feedback. All of that helps us improve the show. It helps us reach a larger audience, helps us put out the content and the media that you guys really want to see and listen to. and just helps us immensely. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here with us. Sean, again, thank you again to you for your time and really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, man. It was great to be on the show. Everybody, here are the events on deck and we will see you on the next one. Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.